0: Chapter two and uh, verse fourteen is really the thesis statement, or the big idea of the whole passage. Hopefully, by the end of verse twenty-eight and verse twenty-six, I'm sorry, you have got the point of the message that faith without works is dead. That's really the only the only thing about it that that uh, that James is, is going to try to to try to get across to us in these verses. But the so what at the end of it, uh, is really where we need to draw our attention and, and, make, and make, the, uh, make the application. But, for, but to get to there, we need to make sure that we understand how James is, is bringing us along through these, through these thoughts. Verse 14. Really, we're going to see him say this over and over and over again, and it's not a really hard thought. It's not a really complicated uh, truth that faith without works is dead, that you need both. But he keeps saying it over and over, and he says it in different ways, but he keeps coming back to the same truth. And so, as I said, the big idea or his thesis statement is that faith is validated or it's confirmed by works. Many uh, many people have come to this uh, passage and have questioned his um, the authority of it because it seems to fly in the face of just about every other salvation doctrine at surface level. But when we dig into it and we really understand what James is trying to get across, uh, it is it by no means contradicts, but in fact it emphasizes the truth and digs deeper uh, to into this, uh, the doctrine of salvation. And so we will, we will see that as well as uh, how it, uh, how it, how it, took place with us at salvation, and then how it deals with us today uh, post-conversion, post-salvation. Now the key emphasis in James so far has been one thing. It's been faith. It's been true faith. That's why the the, the series uh, we're in is is, is bona fide, true, genuine, real, authentic faith. Uh, In uh, in chapter 1 and verse 3, he talked about how faith is tested and perfected. Uh, In chapter 2, we saw we saw uh, pre- uh, uh, the, last week we saw the the faith without prejudice or faith with mercy. Uh, true faith has mercy, true faith uh, is enduring, true faith completes me. Uh, all of these things so far, and the the theme has not changed, although he comes at it from another angle as we see faith that is validated. True faith is validated or confirmed. We see it in verse fourteen verse seventeen verse twenty twenty four and twenty six in just a few verses. Uh, he nails this home as he is beating this hammer, uh, as you're, you know, nailing a, a, uh, nailing a, a nail into a board, uh, you, you get it flush. And sometimes you keep beating it. You can go even deeper than the wood itself. And that seems to be what James is doing here. He's really hammering this truth home. Uh, faith needs works. Faith needs validation. Real faith does something. Or as the title, of this morning's message, Real Faith Works. Not the fact that, yeah, it works for you. Not that way, but Real Faith Works as in Real Faith actually does something. But I ask the question, why does faith need to be validated? As James is going to explain to us very, very very carefully and very detailed uh, that faith uh, needs to be validated, I have to ask the question, why? Why is faith, which is something that's on the inside necessary to be confirmed on the outside, right? We believe that faith comes from God. And faith uh, is not something that you muster up yourself. It's something that God gives to us. And it's something, as we've looked through Genesis and we've looked through other passages, that faith is something that God gives me so that I can follow Him. But why do I need to have something to display what is on the inside? Maybe you've talked to somebody who's made statements such as, well, it's a personal thing. My faith is a is a is a personal matter between me and God. I know that uh, I grew up uh, going out with the church and, and doing things and asking people uh, about their salvation. And we would we would ask people, "Do you know uh, that you're that you're a Christian? Do you know that you've been saved? Or what is your relationship with God?" And oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes, you would run across people that would get offended by that question because they said it's a personal issue. That's not for you. It's none of your business. This is between me and God. And faith is on the inside, but why then does faith need to be validated? Why is James making it so uncomfortable for me to move my faith from the the inside to the outside? And he says it right off at the very beginning. This is why. Because anyone can say he has faith. The point is not simply having faith. Why do we need faith? We all agree that we need to have faith, right? If you're going to be a Christian, you need to have faith. we agree that? Shake your head, do something. Yes? Okay. All right. Why? Why do you need faith? What's the point? Well, I need faith to be saved. Okay. But why do you need faith now? The Bible says that we walk by it. Why do I need it? I mean, what's, what's the point? And if you, if you continue down that road, if you ask yourself that question honestly and enough, and you keep answering the questions that it leads you to, you will find that you need faith, not to simply have it, but for the benefits that having faith brings. And we're gonna look at that a little bit this morning. Now this is how James begins his passage here in verse 14. He says here, what does it profit, my brethren, Though a man say he hath faith and have not works in faith. Now, we have to make sure that we understand what he's saying and what he's not saying. He's not saying, what does it profit if you have faith but don't have works? James is not going to talk about two different types of faith here. He's not going to talk about the faith that has works and the faith that doesn't have works. He says here, what does it profit if a man says he has faith? and doesn't have works. So make sure you get that in mind because we're not talking about multiple kinds of faith. We're talking about one faith. And James says, true faith works. So he says, what is it it, good is it if someone claims to have faith but doesn't have any works with it? And it's it's rhetorical questions. He asks a few of them there. He says in verse 14, what does it, what what profit? And at the end of it, he says, can it save him? Can that faith save him? Uh, Will faith, will that type of faith benefit him? Is that type of faith saving faith, or is it even real faith? That's important to note, as I said, that this is not a contradiction of salvation doctrine. We read in Romans and we read in Ephesians different places that salvation is by grace through faith. It is not of works. It is by faith alone. We see it all through the book of Romans and Romans all throughout many of Paul's epistles, and sometimes uh, people will admit, confuse that James is contradicting everything that Paul was teaching, that yet Paul is not teaching his own doctrine, and neither is James teaching his own doctrine, yet they're teaching the same thing from different angles. They're teaching the doctrine that comes from God. This is the teaching that God has for us, and they both are, they both are going to confirm the same things. Now, James is not saying that works are the basis of faith, but rather that they are the result of faith. Paul tells us that you do not need to do works in order to receive faith or in order to receive salvation. James says, though, that if you do receive faith, you do receive salvation, you will produce works. So it's not something, it's the cart and the horse, which one comes first? And Paul says it is not works, it is Faith alone it is grace through faith and that not of yourselves he says you're, you're saved by grace through faith and the faith is not even of yourselves that's also a gift from God grace is a gift by definition but Paul says here in in, in ephesians 2 eight and nine that that also the faith that we have to be saved uh, by is also a gift from God not of works we're not saved by works but then James comes along and says yeah And once you're saved, if it's been true faith, it will produce works. It will do something because of what faith is and what faith does. One man put it this way, where Paul denies the need for pre-conversion works, James emphasizes the absolute necessity of post-conversion works. They are not what produce faith, but works are what are produced By faith, so he gives several illustrations uh, to really nail this point home. Really, if you get this, you got the message. Then you got to understand the illustration. You got to understand the so what. What's the big deal? Why? Why do I need to know that? Uh, And and I'll lead you. I'll lead you through my thought process as we get towards the end of that. But he's going to give us a couple of illustrations. He gives us two hypothetical illustrations, big ifs, and then he's going to give us two historical illustrations. And then he tops it off with a human illustration. Let's start off with the first illustration there. We see a needy person in verse 15. If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, notwithstanding, you give them not those things which are needful to the body, what is the profit? Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. So he says here, what is the benefit of claiming to have faith Well, that works. Again, the emphasis is on the word claim or say there. What does it benefit if you say you have faith but no works? Since faith alone doesn't help anybody, what's there to talk about? If faith doesn't do anything, what are you talking about it for? And so he says, if a brother or sister, this would be a fellow Christian, someone that is is, uh, connected to you. This is not a perfect stranger out there, uh, although we see plenty of teaching on that, he's going to bring it. He's going to put this illustration on the bottom shelf. He's setting the beauty of, of using illustrations is that you get to craft them however you want. And James is going to use this illustration to—he's going to make it as easy to understand as possible. So he's going to talk about helping a needy person. And it's one thing to help a needy person whom you do not know. It's another thing to help a needy person that is in your family. And he says, brother or sister. Here, uh, Lincoln and I were in uh, Erie this week, and we were we were traveling looking for soccer cleats. And we had to travel to five stores, started in Jamestown, moved to Harbor Creek, ended up in Erie. And uh, one of the things that you notice that uh, that uh, he had not noticed when we lived in Washington that now he finally notices are uh, homeless people, people standing uh, on the street corner with signs and things. And as we were leaving the fifth Walmart, uh, we, uh, we, we, found, we passed this man who was holding a cardboard sign, typical cardboard sign, said homeless need help. Well, now he reads, and now he's paying attention to that stuff, and he's like, Homeless needs help. What's that guy, what does that mean? I said, well, he is homeless, so it means he doesn't have a place to live, or at least the sign says that, and he needs help. He's, he's asking for people's money. And then that one, you know, and we had already passed by, and, and then the next question, which is uh, out of the mouth of babes, you know, he's like, why didn't you help him? Well, son, I didn't have any cash on me, okay? So that was that was my that was my excuse. I felt like I got through that, but as he was talking about it, it convicted me, and I and I and I thought, you know, uh, growing up and where where I where I'm from in Washington, very metropolitan area, very there are a lot of homeless people. In fact, when we went back on vacation, just in uh, just in a year and a half from when we moved until when we, we went back, the, the abundance of, of homeless people is is, is growing. It's crazy. Uh, there there are just there there are tent cities all over the place. Uh, and uh, under bridges, and even where my parents live, uh, there it's kind of a uh, uh, isolated. Uh, it feels like you're in the country, but it's industrial parks all around. But they have acreage, and uh, but they're not far off from the big stores. Maybe three minutes away from, uh, from uh, several fast food and, and 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 you know businesses and things like that. But as you travel, just those three minutes, there's little bridges and 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 railroad tracks, and there's little tents set up, and there's homeless people living. And you, the more you see them, the more, uh, a calloused you can be to saying no to all these people. If you've ever walked down the, the busy streets of a, of a, of a Seattle or Chicago or New York City and people are constantly asking for money, you get used to ignoring them, walking off. You can't give five dollars to every homeless person you meet or you, you know, you won't end it to the, you won't make it to the end of the street. But when you don't see them very often, it's, it's, it's a little bit more striking. It's like, Wow, that person doesn't have—at least their sign says—they don't have a place to live. They don't have food. They don't have anything else. And I know that there are scams, and there are there are people that take advantage of the of the kindness and the generosity of other people. But there are generally uh, genuinely people in need out there. And Paul is going—or I'm sorry, James is going—to use that type of a person here. But he's not just saying a person that you see on the street carrying a cardboard sign. He says this is a brother or sister. This is someone within your congregation. This is someone to whom you have a connection. And notice how he describes them. They are not just a person who needs something. It says here that if a person who is a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food. And the word naked there does not necessarily mean what we think of naked, like a person walking around without any clothes on. But more than likely, it's describing a person who has the undergarments, but they don't have what they really need. Uh, If we were to put it in our culture, it would be a person who lives in western New York that doesn't have a coat, doesn't have... Good, they have holes in their shoes, and it's the only pair of shoes they have. Uh, they only have uh, they they only have one one t shirt. They're wearing jeans and a t shirt, and they're walking around with holes in their shoes in January in, in Western New York. We would say they're about naked. You know, there's not much between you and the elements there. You need something else on you. And he says that they are destitute of daily food. That's where destitute implies an ongoing need. This is not just a one time thing. This isn't someone who forgot to bring his lunch to work or someone who left his jacket at home when he went to the park. This is someone who doesn't have any of these things. They are destitute. They are in need. And notice the reaction. You become aware of the need. You recognize the need. You acknowledge the need because you said to him, Be warmed and filled. But that's all you did. Go in peace. Be warmed and filled is essentially saying goodbye and good luck. So I'm walking down the street. I see someone I know. They're naked. They are hungry. And, and, and they're, they're shivering cold. They're starving. They have no clothes. They have no food. They don't have anything. And I walk past and I recognize that person. I recognize the need that that person has. And all I can come up with is goodbye and good luck. You know, it reminds me of the priest and the Levite who passed by the, the injured man on the side of the road. Maybe they said that much. Goodbye and good luck. Be warmed and filled. But they don't do anything other than that and they continue to walk on. And James says when you do nothing about the need and use this type of verbiage as your excuse, what you're doing is using God as your excuse to not get involved. Basically saying, may God help you so I don't have to. This is actually a form of a prayer. That that, that, that they're saying here, it's a blessing, it's a prayer of blessing on this person. I pray that you will be warmed because you're naked and filled because you're hungry. But I'm not going to do anything about it. I just, I hope it gets better. for you. Now, what he's describing here, as I said, is not something that requires great amount of resources to help out with. I think we've all got something that if we came across someone who truly had no clothes, and truly had no food to eat, we could probably go into our own closets and even the poorest person in here could still probably find something to help that person. with, Whether it be one meal, or whether it be a sweater, or whether it be an old pair of shoes or boots or something, there's something we could do. And even the poorest person in here could probably scrounge up the money to go and take them and, and get them something to help them out and make it just a little bit better. Do, do you agree with me there? I think that we could all find the resources. So the resources aren't the problem here. It's the attitude of may God help you so that I don't have to. One writer named, his name, Luke Johnson, he says this is a religious cover for a failure to act. And it's a spiritual excuse for our inaction, trying to look good while we do nothing. And that's what James is saying. How does that help? How does that prayer of blessing help them? Does that make their belly full? Does that warm them simply because you prayed for them? No. In fact, it probably didn't... We know it helped, but it probably made the situation worse. Have you ever heard people talk about Christianity negatively because of the negative experience they've had from other Christians? I can't remember who it was that said I would be a Christian if it were not for Christians. Because they look at how we act and they say, they won't even do that? We talk about the spiritual aspect of it, but we don't take care of the actual need right there. It's the equivalent of going to a restaurant. I hope none of you do this. Uh, you go to a restaurant, and they'll leave a gospel track as the tip. You ever seen someone do that? Like, I can't believe you do that. They're like, uh, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, give I thee. Like, no, they actually healed the guy, okay? They didn't leave him a gospel track. And people will do that, and they'll think that this is better than the two dollars that, that you need. Christians ought to be generous. We ought to be, we ought to, if you're gonna leave a gospel track, you better leave some money with it. I mean, you better leave. You better leave some good cash there, where they do not be a, that we're, we're, we're nickel and diming it. We're, we're generous with that stuff because that's who we are. Because someone who is who is far more generous to us has taught us how to be generous to other people. But he goes on. He says that this is the problem with this with this type of this so-called faith. Though we are to ask God, and the Lord's Prayer involves even the the, the statement, give us this day our daily bread. And though we are supposed to ask God for our daily bread and depend on Him for it, the reality is that it is often delivered by His people. You pray for your daily bread and the things that you need, but where does it come from? Does God just magically float the food down from heaven? Manna hasn't happened since the Old Testament. Nowadays, it comes through the form of other Christians. Nowadays, it comes through the form of other people whom God has blessed that said, I'm going to do something with this blessing and help other people. And when we fail to get involved that way and we say we have faith, but not that type of works, James says, you wasted your breath. If all I do is say I have faith, it doesn't help anybody, which implies that true faith should be helpful. He goes on to the next one. I have to hasten. Verse 18, the foolish person illustration. He says, yea, a man may say, thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. He says here that someone is arguing that they do indeed have faith, they just don't have works. And James is encountering with how can you separate those two things? Can you show me your faith without your works? He says, because it is by my works that I show you my faith. I don't believe you can separate the two. He says that is true faith simply having correct doctrine? Is true faith simply knowing the truth? He goes into this and he says, do you believe that there's one God? Good job. Good for you. The devils, the demons, they believe that too. And they tremble. Think about that. Uh, this, this word tremble and uncontainable, uncontrollable, violent, shaking from fear. That's what the demons do in response to the truth. I like this. Uh, Craig Blumberg said, James asserts that the demons can match the original challenger's theology point for point, And they are overwhelmed by the truth of these doctrines, but they remain condemned. If all I do is have the right doctrine, and that's it, I've not gone past, I have nothing more than demon doctrine. Or what is someone's called demon faith. Now there's not another type of faith, it's just saying it's the equivalent of that. It doesn't do anything for them. The demons believe that who the true God is. We've been studying in Acts how the one demon uh, looked at the, the men who were trying to cast him out of the of the man, and he said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? And immediately he jumps on these men and one, one demon-possessed man took care of seven, pe- seven grown men, beat them up, tore their clothes off, hurt them, and sent them running away with their ego bruised and their bodies bruised. He said, I know who Jesus is, but I don't know who you are. And simply because you mentioned Jesus' name doesn't make me obey you. I know who Jesus is. I know He's the Son of God. We saw that several times through the Gospels as Jesus would encounter demon-possessed people and they would say have don't have anything to do with that son of god they 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 know who god is and they know the truth about it and if that's all you have james says not that big a deal be equivalent of one of you grown men coming up to me and telling me bragging you know how to tie your shoes okay i don't i'm not impressed hey i know how to ride a bike with two wheels ooh you know like, I mean it's impressive if you're 5 I get excited for you, but I don't get excited if Donnie says it to me. Yeah, I'm finally off the training wheels. I'm like, well, okay, thank you. You know, pat you on the head and send you on your way because that's not impressive. And that's what James is saying. Okay, you have correct doctrine, big deal. Demons have the correct doctrine, and yet they remain condemned. Faith and works cannot be separated, and it is foolish to think otherwise. Number three, the historical illustration. Now, he's going to give two to historical illustrations. And though they are separate, they do connect to each other. And he's going to talk about two very uh, recognizable people, Abraham and Rahab. Verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect, and the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. Abraham, we know, was justified by faith. Genesis 15.6 says it again in Romans 4.3, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. This verse cites that. But what James is saying here is that that faith was proven and that the Scriptures were fulfilled. The Scriptures that said that Abraham's belief counted him righteous, they were fulfilled that day on Mount Moriah, Genesis twenty two. When he offered up Isaac, his son, remember the words that God said to him. He says, "Now I know that, you're, that you that that you put me first. Now I know that you have not kept anything back from me. I am number one in your life." It was a con- confirmation of the faith that Abraham already had in his life. Now, now he was not. Uh, well, see, true faith produces works, but well, what kind of works? We look at the works that Abraham did. I don't believe that true faith evidences itself by offering up our children. Sometimes parents would be more than willing to uh, confirm their faith in that way. Uh, But that's not how it works, okay? So don't don't get any ideas. Uh, Michael Townsend said, The actions that James ascribes to Abraham are not keeping the law, nor even works of mercy, but the radical obedience of faith itself. That's how works displayed themselves in Abraham's life. By radically obeying God, doing something very hard to do, but yet God commanded him to do. That's how it was evidenced in his life. True faith is radical obedience. Number four in the second person. It is in verse 25. Likewise, also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way. If you're not familiar with the story of Rahab, read Joshua chapter 2. As the children of Israel were about to make their way into Jericho, they sent spies. They sent two spies in, I think it was, and and they they went in, and uh, they, the, the 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 men of Jericho knew that the spies were there. They knew that the children of Israel were encamped and they were going to attack them. And the men of Jericho, uh, the men of Jericho were were scared. They were they were like little children. They were so scared. The whole town was scared. And Rahab has this conversation with them as she hides them. She diverts these soldiers when they come to her house. Uh, many people uh, would say that uh, the Bible describes her as a harlot. She was a prostitute. But uh, other historians and commentators suggest that she also would have run the hotel or the little, the little hostel there, uh, which would, because it you know, brings the fact, like, what are these two guys doing visiting a brothel when they're supposed to be spying on the city? So uh, it, it, it makes a little bit more sense to, to understand that maybe she had some sort of hotel or something, uh, place to stay. She was also a prostitute. But anyways, they come to her house. They know that she was, that they, that she had welcomed them there. And she said, yes, I just sent them on their way. If you catch them, if you hurry, you can catch them. But then they were upstairs and she had hid them under some, under some things. And, and eventually the, the soldiers go away and she brings them up and she, she, she says essentially this. I know that God is with you. And I know he's the one true God. And ever since we heard about what God did with you at the Red Sea 40 years ago, we have trembled. That's the faith that everybody had in town. That's the belief, the understanding, the the acknowledging of the truth that everybody in Jericho had. But then she went a step further and she said, now listen, I know that you're going to take over our city. I'm asking you to spare me. I'm going to let you down. And they come up with this idea, hang the red cord out of the window and and, uh, if we see the red cord, everyone in your house will be saved. That was something that no one else in the city did. She evidenced her faith or her belief True, her actions. Uh, true, uh, uh, he says here that uh, she was justified the same way that Abraham was uh, by faith when she believed, and was, and that faith was proven by her works when she had despised. Uh, in Abraham and Rahab, we find two very opposite people, yet they were justified the same way. Now, we would rightly expect someone like Rahab to show a difference because of faith, right? I mean, she was a prostitute. If you say you have faith, I want to see some difference. I don't think you could be a good Christian and be a prostitute. And we rightly expect to see change from someone on the moral scale, on the same side of the moral scale as Rahab, whose background requires the display of good works to prove their good faith. But, it is also right to expect proving works from those on the side of the scale as Abraham the good patriarch upstanding the moral abraham and the prostitute rahab the bible says they were both justified by faith and it was proven by works and for everybody else in between it's the same way last one the, the last illustration is the human illustration and paul and james makes it pretty clear with this one he says for as the body without the spirit is dead so faith without works is dead also just as a body without a spirit is considered dead and useless, James says that's the same thing with faith and works. Faith without works is dead and useless. What, what do you call a body that doesn't have a spirit? You call it a corpse. Do you want those lying around? No, that's weird, right? Uh, what happens to a body without a spirit? Well, it quickly decays, stinks, pretty gross, and we try to do everything we can to get it away from us. Though we love the person that, that that lived in that body, when they're gone from that body, we don't keep the body around. Right? We bury it. We distance ourselves from it. We don't leave them sitting in the rocking chair or in the bed. That's that's not normal. And that's what, that's what James is trying to explain there. That faith that doesn't have any spirit in it, it doesn't have any works in it, becomes quickly like a corpse, dead and stinky and gross, and you need to distance yourself from that. True saving faith means that Jesus has begun and completes a good work in a person. I want to take I want to, take you to Philippians 1.6. If you've got your Bible open, we just have a few minutes, and I want to, I want to show you this verse. Philippians 1.6. I'm going to read it as soon as I'm there. It says, Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. It's talking about Christ, and it's talking about two different things. It's talking about that Jesus started something in me at salvation. And He continues to do it to this day. And He will continue to do it until the day of Christ. Until the very end, if you will, okay? So, Jesus started a work in me. He's going to continue doing that work in me. We call it sanctification. Justification, sanctification, eventually glorification, right? Right? He started this work in me and he's doing it all. That way, that verse guarantees that true faith doesn't die. If I have true faith, it will not die because it was started by Christ and it is perpetuated by Christ. It's a promise that true faith doesn't die out because Jesus himself is completing it and bringing it to perfection. And notice what he started there. Notice the word that he uses there, a good work. Work, not necessarily—he not not necessarily using the word faith there, but works. He started something in me, and he's continued. And what James is saying here, back in in the last verse of the chapter, there that faith and works are as interconnected as a body and a spirit are. What does a spirit do for a body? Well, two things that come up come to mind right away. Number one, it proves that it's alive, right? And number two, it enables it to do something. Okay, there's a body. That's great. can't do anything unless there's spirit within them. And then it does something. What's the point of having a body? It's All the way back to the original question, what's the point of having faith if it doesn't do anything? What's the point of having a body if you can't do anything with it? You don't have any spirit, no life inside of you. Just a corpse. You don't want that around. And that's what he's saying here, the faith with works. You have to have both. Here's the so what. I know that doing good works cannot produce good, true, saving faith. We don't get the cart before the horse. I know that they cannot and they do not produce good works. So this is not a motivation to start doing good works so that you can have good faith. Okay, That's not what it's talking about. And I also know, that going back to our our study in Matthew 13, that if I am good ground, or, or if I have true faith, if I'm the good soil, The fact that I am good soil will be revealed in the fruit that it produces in me, right? So uh, good ground is revealed in the form of fruit. And true faith is revealed in the form of fruit. And part of the fruit is good works. And it's going to be produced in me and through the work of the Spirit living in me. The Holy Spirit does these things. The only reason I produce fruit in my life is not because I made it happen. It's because the Holy Spirit, that's why it's called the fruit of the Spirit. It it produces itself within me. Now, true faith will reveal itself in many different ways, but it will reveal itself. I want to read one more quote from here from uh, Mr. Blumberg. He says, true saving faith by definition means that the Spirit enters a person's life to begin conforming them to the likeness of Christ. This transformation cannot be quantified may be different for every person in detail and regularly involves many fits and starts or forward and backward steps. But over time, it does result in changed living. And one of the key areas affected will be concern for the poor and corollary actions to help them. So I can't look and necessarily determine what works you're supposed to have to prove that you have true faith. There's not a one particular work, just like we say we don't offer our children up to prove that we have true faith. And we don't let spies escape It's called treason nowadays. You can't do that. But there are works that do produce themselves. They will be different for all of us. And the timetable might be different, just like when we plant the seed in the ground. It might take a while for it to grow. It doesn't happen overnight. And some plants take a little longer than other plants, don't they? But they always produce fruit if the ground is good. I had to ask myself this question. Even late into the week, What's the point of this passage? If this passage is not telling me to start doing good works so that I can produce faith, and it's also not telling me that to prove that I have good faith, I have to do these good works because the Spirit is the one doing this work in me. Jesus started this and continues this. What's the point of this passage? Two things. Number one, since good works don't produce faith, But the other way around, good faith produces good works. I need to first take a look at myself and ask the question, is my faith producing any works? This is really an introspective question. Do I have true faith? If I can look at my life and see some kind of fruit, then I know I have true faith. The opposite is true as well. That if I look at my life and over time I see no fruit, I see no growth, I see nothing happening. It's still just as barren as it was the day the seed was planted. According to Matthew 13, to James 2, and according to the whole Bible, it's not true faith. If it's not producing works, it's not the faith of the Bible. It's not the faith that James is talking about. It's not the faith that comes from God. It's not saving faith. So if it's not saving faith, What is it? Because faith that does no good is no good. Faith that doesn't do anything good doesn't do anything good for me. Because faith is not for me to keep to myself. It's not just something that stays between me and God. It's not that personal issue like some would have us think. Faith has a purpose outside of me. God gives me that faith to obey Him. So that I can do something for him. Then I move past that. If I've checked my faith and I say, you know, no, I can see fruit. That's there. James is speaking to Christians here. I don't doubt the the, 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 the validity of these people's salvation. He's talking about, he's talking to good Christians that have good faith, which means that they will produce good works. So what's the, the second reason here? This passage is here to remind us to do something about our faith. Again, remember? He said, what good is it to say you have faith if there's no works there? So here's the second thing. Don't just talk about your faith. Talk about it. It's good. That's called spreading the gospel. We're supposed to share our faith with other people, but don't just talk about your faith. Show it. The saying goes, talk is cheap, right? And James says anybody can say that he has faith. If you have it, prove it. Let me end with a verse from Hebrews 10. It says, let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. The point of our gathering here today, the point of Bible studies and Sunday schools is to provoke the good faith in each of us. Produce work. Sometimes I get a little lazy. Sometimes I get a little distracted. Sometimes I forget. Part of the church's function is to provoke and to stir up within each of us the good works. What does your faith do? Does it do anything? If not, you need a different faith. You need the faith that the Bible talks about. Because if you have the faith that James is speaking of, the faith that Paul speaks of, the faith of the Bible, it's going to produce something. You'll learn that real faith works.